then this summer on first and we'll move into second Samuel and we're looking at um, the life of this one David who we know and we would all agree has gone through some significant struggles in his life and yet there's been a process that he has slowly and steadily grown in his strength we saw this when his dad left him out on the back 40 in the fields we saw this when his brothers were angry with him. We saw this when, when King Saul was jealous of David. We saw this when he struggled with depression and discouragement and despair in the cave of Adullam. We saw this when he extended grace to another who certainly didn't deserve it while he was in the cave in, in Gedi. And we can relate at some level because in our life, we too go through struggles. But I think if we are completely honest, we still have kind of a hard time connecting with and relating with David on many levels. Sure, we, we have all what? We've driven by and we've seen sheep before. Maybe we stopped, got out of the car, and took a picture of some sheep. But not a lot of us have been a shepherd before. It's hard to relate to him on that level. Some of you I know have traveled far north and sat into a tree over a barrel of Dunkin' Donuts and shot a bear with a high-powered rifle. But I don't think there's many here that have killed a bear with a slingshot before. I'm sure that some of you have, what, punched out a bully in fourth grade. But I don't think any one of us can really identify with, what, taking down a nine-foot, nine-inch giant soldier that's armed to the teeth. We've got some harp players in our body, and we have some songwriters in our body. But it's kind of hard, you have to admit... We don't really measure up to words like this. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters and he restores my soul. It's kind of hard for us to compete with things like that. Maybe you've been chased around the playground before, but you've not been hunted through the countryside like an animal for literally what years on end. Now we know God's word speaks to us. We know that it is perfectly relevant to where we are at. And we know that as believers, we too have been chosen like David and anointed and even promised to be part of a kingdom. But if you were to think of us this morning being described as a man or a woman after God's own heart, after God's own hearts, that's kind of a stretch for us at some level to connect with David. But this morning we get a glimpse of David. We will see him and he is, in this text, far, far from perfect. And we all can identify with that. There are times that David's vision kind of seems blurred. His judgment seems off. And in this particular case, his anger begins to boil. And we all can connect and relate with that. When someone ticks you off, tells you off. And you have that 
feeling of just, we get mad, hot, furious, steaming in a fit of rage. Question this morning I want to present to you is this. How do you react in those moments? How should you react? We're going to look at David and learn how he reacts, what he should and what he should not have done. And we can learn as we, all of us, at some level, struggle with this subject of anger in our lives. Let me set the stage a little bit for you before I begin to read the story. Picks up in the first part of 1 Samuel 25. And it goes kind of like this. The prophet Samuel has just died. The one who has anointed David to be the next king. The faithful prophet. The voice of God-centered reason is gone. He exists no longer. It says that all of Israel begins to mourn. And David certainly mourns the loss of Samuel. Think about this. The anointed promise of the throne, it seems like what? A distant dream. The anointed promise of of the throne, at this point in David's life, it almost seems like a cruel joke. Because David is still living on the run. And to make matters worse, David has what? 600 Mighty men with him who he has the responsibility to lead them and feed them. And that's a lot of mouths to feed. 600 men. This is not a drive-through solution. We're just going to go through the drive-through quick on this one. It's it's not going to be solved that way. So whether or not it was Adullam or whether or not it was Engedi or the entire northeast portion of the Sinai Peninsula... As David is roaming the countryside with his men, the entire region is filled with enemy Palestinian, excuse me, Philistine soldiers. As leader, he has been, I read this week, almost acting in a Robin Hood type of a way. Where he is being what? As he is escaping from Saul, he's actually helping many of the Israeli settlers in the particular region. One of those settlers that he was helping was a wealthy man whose name was was Nabal and his wife Abigail. And they are described in verse 4 like this. The woman was discerning and beautiful. But the man was harsh and badly behaved. We know that Nabal was rich. It says that he has 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. And Abigail, I suspect, would probably agree with the, the Beatles that says money can't buy me love. It certainly didn't buy her love. Most likely it was just simply an arranged marriage. The parents made the choice. And so she is, she was stuck in this relationship. David had been up in the hills and now he comes down to the fields and he is in great need. He and his men are in search of food because there's 600 hungry, or we could call this, there's 600 hangry men. You know what a man's like when he doesn't get food. 
So what David does is he sends some guys ahead. He tells them to ask. Nothing specific, but rather it says, what? Ask, please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son David. Today we would probably in our culture think that's a touch forward, but in this day, in these particular circumstances, it's totally normal. It's a reasonable request. Nothing strange, nothing outlandish. Fellow countrymen who are in need, who are asking, is a normal thing. It's a good thing. So let's pick up the story in verse 9. 1 Samuel 25, verse 9. Read down through verse 13. <clears throat> when David's young men came, they said all this to Nabal. In the name of David, and then... They weighed it. And Nabal answered David's servants. Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I've killed for my shearers? And give it to men who come from I don't know where. So David's young men turned away and came back and told him all this. And David said to his man, David said to his men, Every man strap on his sword. And every man of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword. And about 400 men went up after David. While 200 remained with the baggage. I always thought in this story, I'd hate to be the guys that have to stay with the luggage, you know? It's kind of easy to figure out what's going on right here before us. It's pretty easy to interpret what we've just read. What's going on? There's a man whose name is Nabal. Literally, literally his name translates, it means, here it is, fool. Nabal means fool. And he is acting exactly like a fool. He begins by asking this question. As David and his men come, or his man David has sent to him, and ask, do you have anything? Who's David. Who, who's David? Please hear me on this one. Every single person in the entire country knew exactly who David was. Any fool would know who he is, apparently, except this one. After David killed Goliath, it says that David's fame spread throughout the land and all of Israel and all of Judah loved David. <clears throat> Yet this foolish man... Literally says, shall I take what? My bread, my water, my meats? And give it to someone from, I don't even know where he comes from. Basically, this wealthy man is saying what? He's saying someone close to him is in need. This someone is actually God's anointed, is God's heir to the throne. And this someone is hungry. Even starving. And Nabal's response is this. I don't care. 
I don't care. The King James Version actually translates in verse 3 a description of Nabal like this. He was churlish and evil in his ways. This means that in his dealings with other people, he was arrogant. He was insolent individual with no regard for anyone other than himself. So selfish, as we just read in verse 11, seven times, he refers to what? I or my. One commentator wrote this, Nabal was a drunk. He was intoxicated with himself. Pretty accurate. I asked you a question this morning. Ever run into a fool before? I have. Ever have your path crossed with a Nabal before? Ever been rudely treated and or ignored before? Ever been broke down on the side of the road and someone like intentionally kind of swerves into the puddle just to splash you and soak you? At that moment, let me ask you this. How'd you do? How'd you do and what was your response in that moment? Hopefully, hopefully better than David does right here. There's no doubt about the fact that we could give it to David. He is hungry. We know that he's tired. We know that he has been living in fear on the run for quite some time. And finally, it's this one guy who makes this one statement that just pushes David over the edge. Well, how, how, how angry is David? David's men came back to him, report it. And David said to this, every man, you better load up. Every one of you better strap on your sword. It says that David himself strapped on his sword. I think we get a little bit of an idea of the anger that is welling up in this man. This is God's anointed. This is God's chosen, faithful. And he is what? He's losing a battle. To anger. Lucado, who describes things so well, he says, the road rumbles as David grumbles. You, you realize that the Bible has a lot to say about the subject of fools. Just to give you a very quick rundown, it says in Deuteronomy 32, Psalm 94, fools are unwise, which we know that. Fools are immoral, 2 Samuel 13, Job 30. Fools are prideful. Fools run their mouths with just nonsense. Ecclesiastes 5, Ecclesiastes 7, Ecclesiastes 10, Matthew 5. Fools reject God and what God's word says, 1 Samuel 13, Job 2, Psalm 14, Proverbs 1. Bible has much to say on the subject of fools. Foolish thinking deceives and leads to sin and leads to destruction. Second Samuel 24, 1 Chronicles 21, Psalm 5, Psalm 34, Psalm 107, Proverbs 17. It's all over the place. Fools and foolish thinking should actually be avoided, it says in Scripture. Proverbs 9, Proverbs 13, Proverbs 26, Proverbs 29. You know, according to some of these descriptions here, if you were to look at our world today and our society, 
Fools are immoral. Fools are prideful. They run their mouths. There is no lack. There is no lack of fools in our society today. Sure, we see, we see the sword on David's hip. But do you realize we actually get a glimpse into his heart when he speaks? In verse 22, God do so to the enemies of David, and more also if by morning I leave so much as one male alive of all who belong to him. Eugene Peterson trans, translates or paraphrases that. In the message, he says this, May God do his worst to me if Nabal and every cur in his misbegotten brood is in dead meat by morning. I mean, that's pretty, that's pretty blunt. I think you're kind of getting the picture of what I'm trying to paint here, that David is ticked and it's this guy that pushes him over the edge. I think we could probably come to a conclusion that says... David, as the leader, is not the greatest example of spirit-led leadership to his men at this particular moment. What do you think happened to the 600 men who were told, report it, to strap on their sword? Do you realize this? Anger is always contagious. Anger is always contagious. If David is mad, everybody with David's going to be mad. If daddy is upset and angry in the home, it's going to be a home that is what? It's filled with anger. If mom's mad, the kids are going to be mad. If the pastor's angry, then what? We're going to have an entire church filled with angry people. And we see this example right here in David's life. But then, but then, something happens. Something changes. Out of nowhere. Beauty. Beauty appears. Out of nowhere, wisdom is spoken and the entire situation takes a turn. Thankfully, the Lord graciously, and I think in all honesty, very, very often protects us from ourselves by placing what? By putting the right people in the right place at the right time with the right words. And that is exactly what happened with David. When what? In amazing, when in intelligence, when a godly and a gifted woman whose name was Abigail walks what? Into the light and speaks with such wisdom and such grace. You may have heard stories in the past, Sunday school lessons about this beautiful woman, Abigail. Her name literally means cause or reason of joy. Reason for joy. We have no genealogy that is given anywhere in scripture about her, but apparently she has had a good upbringing, a godly upbringing. She certainly is a student of Jewish history. 
Her name is totally, totally appropriate. And as we examine, as we listen to our words, let me remind you, both men and women that are sitting here, children that are sitting here, we can listen to and learn. We can learn much from this incredible, incredible woman. Let's pick up the dialogue. Let's pick up the narrative in, in verse 18. Verse 25, verse 18. Then Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves and two skins of wine and five sheep that have already been prepared and five seas of parched grain and a hundred clusters of raisins and 200 cakes of figs. Laid them on donkeys and she said to her young men, go on before me. Behold, I, I come after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. And she rode on the donkey and came down under cover of the mountain. Behold, David and his men came down toward her and she met them. Jump down with me to verse 23. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the grounds. She fell at his feet and said, on me, on me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servants speak in your ears and hear the words of your servants. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow, Nabal. For as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name and folly is with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand now, then let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. And now let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men and follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant. For the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord and evil shall not be found in you so long as you shall live. Wow. When Abigail hears, when Abigail gets word of how her husband Nabal had said, who's this David? What, what does she do first? And how does she respond to David? What does any wise woman do? She comes with food. How does, how does she even approach David with food? Bringing gifts of food. Abigail, we know, appeals to David's conscience as what? As his upcoming, soon-to-be responsibilities as king. And she appeals to him. She doesn't disagree with David's assessment of her husband, Nabal. She actually begs for forgiveness and accepts blame for something that she didn't even do. And urges him. To forget about Nabal and allow the Lord. Allow the Lord to deal with him. She also advises him to avoid the guilt and remorse 
that will follow if he carries forth with this what? This bloodthirsty action. Listen to the response of David in verse 32. And David said to Abigail, Blessed, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion. Blessed be you who have kept me from this day, this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, who has restrained me from hurting you unless you had hurried and come to meet me, Truly by morning there had not been one left to Nabal so much as one male. Then David received from her hand what she had brought and he said to her, Go up in peace to your house. See, I have obeyed your voice and I have granted your petition. You know, as we listen to this story and we see David's response here, as we consider God's word speaking to our hearts this morning, God's word always what desires that we look at ourselves and we examine our own hearts where there's seeds, even seeds of anger that exist when you hear something or see something that is unfair, unkind or unjust. Something that just, it just makes your teeth clench and your blood boil and you feel your fists beginning to tighten. What do you do? Well, very, very quickly at four points of application on what we should not do. Number one, do not ever make rash decisions. Don't ever make rash decisions. You see, no one would argue with the fact that David was, he was stuck in a really difficult, miserable situation, a dire situation. No one can, can argue with the fact that it had to be frustrating and exhausting for David and his men. I don't know what time of the year, if it wasn't hot and muggy and buggy. It could have been cold and, and wet and bone chilling. Either way, it was a horrible situation to be in. And at this point, what it looks like a total unfulfilled promise. He had been anointed king. Yeah, right. Just like some of you look at your own life and like, yeah, this is not what I picked. Some of you are thinking and waiting for God's blessing and it just doesn't seem to be that. I think my life would be this difficult. I didn't think my marriage would be this hard. I didn't think my kids would be so rebellious. I didn't think my job would be so hard. An unfulfilled promise. Or maybe what? What certainly feels like just unrelenting hunger. We just what? We just live from paycheck to paycheck. We get up, go to work, come home, go to bed, do it all over again. We just can't get ahead. We can't achieve. We're not, we're not moving anywhere. In all of those circumstances, it's really, really easy just to get mad. Why? Because life is hard. But regardless of what, of outward circumstances, we cannot, we cannot let the flesh roar. We cannot, what, let anger rage. We cannot let the enemy win. 
I love the words of David's son. Solomon later writes in Proverbs 15, a hot-tempered person stirs up strife, stirs up conflict, but one slow to anger quiets contention. I almost had to laugh this week as I was in preparation. I was reading the words of, of the apostle Peter. I get a kick out of the fact that it was Peter, brash, unpredictable, who had a tendency, what, to grab the sword as he literally did in the Garden of Gethsemane. Yet it was Peter who writes in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7, be controlled and sober-minded. It's almost as if Peter's saying, yeah, I, like, I tried the other approach and that doesn't work very well. Let me show you that. Be controlled and sober-minded. Never, ever, ever, what? race to quick rash decisions number two do not ever take justice in your own hands there's no value there there is no benefit there is never ever ever a solution to a problem by you flipping out flying off the handle or in this case, what? There's no solution ever by strapping on your sword. Regardless of how unjust or un unfair you have been treated. And some of you, I know, have been mistreated. But regardless of what anyone has ever, ever done to you or said to you, no one, no one of us, has ever been mistreated more than Jesus Christ himself. And it was Jesus Christ who said, as I quote in Matthew chapter 5 in verse 38, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That was the law of the land. But Jesus steps in and says, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, Turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And that language just doesn't seem very right and fair. Somebody slaps you and you just, you just take it? Exactly what Jesus did. Described in Isaiah chapter 53 is what? He's silent as a lamb is brought before the slaughter. Now, I, I don't think for a moment this is a call to pacifism. I don't see that here. Because we're certainly as followers of Jesus to always pursue justice in those who are created, all of us, in the image of a perfectly just God. We are to ref reflect that in every way. But it's very clear we live in a broken, a corrupt, and a fallen world. And justice, what ultimately we have to understand, is not in our hands. We are never, ever, ever promised justice this side of glory, this side of heaven. We do see Jesus, we know this, express righteous indignation. Twice, as a matter of fact, when he cleanses the temple, all four Gospels, Matthew 21, Mark 11, Luke 19, John 2, all speak about this time 
when Jesus goes in and cleans house. Why? Because people were attempting to blaspheme his father's holiness. I think that's a little bit of a better reason than somebody butting in front of the line in your life. That's the stuff that Jesus got what righteously indignant about. What a reminder again, it was Peter who wrote, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. First Peter chapter 4, verse 19. Just pause on that for a moment. Peter's actually saying what? It's, it's actually God's will at some level for you to suffer. That's his plan for you. Like gold tried in the fire. It's purified. And then just put, put these words on your refrigerator. Write them down on the tree by five card and put them up in the mirror that you spend a lot of time staring at yourself at. What does it say? It says, entrust your soul to the faithful creator while doing good. We know the story continues on and God does bring justice and God does remove Nabal in verses 36 and 37 and 38. He's having a party. He's drunk. The next day he has a heart attack or a stroke. Ten days later he's dead. David actually ends up marrying this widow. But we know that God is the one, what? Who offers justice. Mary J. Evans says it like this, perhaps Paul's instruction to Christian believers, do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath, resulted from the meditation on Abigail's story. And we see that. There is what? There is no value ever to try and take justice in your own hands. Thirdly, do not ignore godly wisdom. David had what? He had a... a, a a focus, a single-minded focus. He was red-faced in anger. And it appeared that there would be nothing that would have ever stopped bloodshed. But something did happen. Someone spoke words that he heard, that he listened to, and changed his mind and changed his actions. David said to Abigail, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Kept me from working or trying to work salvation from my own hand. What is wisdom today? The right word at the right time. The right decision made at the precise moment. We look around our world and we know that there's not a lot of wisdom that resides in this world. Why? Because godly wisdom comes from above. Again, it's Solomon who writes in Proverbs 3, Blessed is the man who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding. Could, could I speak to the men, the husbands that are here for a moment? Do you realize that God has gifted many of you with a godly woman who is what wise and discerning and you would be wise to listen to and to lean in to the discernment of a godly woman i love how it says what he who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the lord i rejoice that i have found a good thing 
and the gift that God has given to me and my wife. You realize that oftentimes we would relegate or push aside. You realize that Abigail, in that particular culture, in that context, in the Middle East, was risking death to speak in place of her husband. If he would have found out, she would have been stoned right there on the spot for what she did. And a brave and a wise and a discerning woman. For all of us, do not ever ignore godly wisdom. Fourthly and finally, do not forget God's promises. I love how Abigail, Abigail what? She takes the blame upon herself. She literally says, what? On me alone be the guilt. She didn't even do anything wrong. And she's covering for her foolish husband. On me alone. Abigail seeks forgiveness. Please forgive the trespasses of your servant in verse 28. And what else does Abigail do? She reminds David at a time that he needed to be reminded of God's promises. Literally, says, she says, the Lord will certainly make you a sure house or a steady house. What a godly woman. What a great example. And really, you know what? She's just one who points to and reminds us of what Jesus Christ himself has done for us. What has Jesus Christ done? He has taken the blame of all of our sin and he has placed it on himself. He seeks forgiveness and relationship. What does Jesus do? Constantly remind us of the promises of what is to come. Not, not, not the here and the now, but to look for the eternal, not the temporal. Look for the unseen, not the seen. It's exactly what she does. Again, it's Peter who writes in 1 Peter chapter 2, He himself, Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. If there's anything, if there's anything that can root out the seeds of anger in our own life, in the depths of our heart and our soul, it's knowing the gospel of Jesus Christ. A holy God created everything and everyone out of nothing. And there's us, broken, fallen, sinful men, deserving nothing but what? The consequences of our own sin, which is death and separation. And Jesus steps in. It says literally, he, he himself bore our sins. This morning, when we put our faith and our trust and we receive the gift that has been offered to us through the full finished work of Jesus. We're brought into relationship. Does our anger go away? No, apparently not. But I tell you what, he deals with it. And he forgives us of our anger. Thankfully, the Lord used Abigail to stop David in his tracks. The consequences to his foolish actions in his flesh would have absolutely been disastrous. And so this morning as we close, my prayer is that we will bring all of those feelings inside of us. You know what you're wrestling with. I have no idea. The Holy Spirit speaks. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just, ooh. It's her. It's him. 
at this moment, we don't come to church just for something to do. We come to church to allow the Holy Spirit to change our life. And so as I close in prayer, I would ask that you would allow the Holy Spirit to speak, to reveal to you what it is that you're struggling with. You leave the least little bit of frustration and it can lead to anger. Anger leads to bitterness and bitterness destroys. Ask God to forgive you when you confess your anger. But perhaps this morning you're saying, yeah, well, in all honesty, I'm doing okay. I'm not angry. I was, but I'm not. Praise God for that. As our heads are bowed, thank God for giving you a sense of freedom and joy through Jesus. Bow your heads and pray with me. Father, I thank you so much for this reminder from Scripture. This lesson that we have opportunity to look inside and also listen to your spirit speak to us. And Father, we confess, I confess that, that I struggle with anger at times and frustration. I pray, Lord, that all of us would confess that. Maybe we need to go to the person that we are angry towards and ask for forgiveness. Father, we thank you that you took the blame and the weight and the wrath of our own sins. That you too seek forgiveness and oneness in our relationship. I thank you, Lord, for the promises to come. We look around in this world so we don't have to get stuck in the here and now, but we can look to what you have in store for us. Father, may you speak and may we be obedient and hear. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.